morning, Salt City. My name is Jordan Adams, and I have always wanted to be great, which feels weird to say out loud, but it's true. Even since I was a kid, I've had this, like, this drive and this ambition in me. I remember as a little kid being out in the driveway and the driveway basketball hoop. Anybody else remember those days? The lights from the garage were shining down on me, and all of a sudden those lights became the lights of the stadium in the final four, right? And I'm my own announcer, Adams dribbling down the the floor. They need a three to win the final four, which uh, was a significant overestimation of my own skill set and a misunderstanding of my body type. Like, I played basketball through high school, but there was no three shot. I was with the rumblers down low rebounding and defensive specialist, but, you know, Adams dribbles down the floor, they need a three, three, two, one, you know, and when it goes in, like, ah, you know, I, like, nobody's out there, but I can hear them chanting my name, like, Jordan, Jordan, you know, now, I think a lot of us have some of that drive for greatness, some of you resonate with that, uh, Some of you maybe had that and forgot about it a long time ago. You're in like full-blown survival mode. The baby explosion has happened at Salt City, and you're just in the grind. And greatness to you is like all the humans in your house being alive at the end of the day, right? Like greatness is, is 10 minutes of silence, and I've walked through a little bit of that phase in life. But regardless of kind of where you're at in that, I think all of us have this sense that we want to be a part of something that matters. We want to give our lives to something significant, weighty, important. And if nothing else, we have a fascination with people who have done that, people who are great. And that's what we're talking about today. What is true greatness and how do you live into it? Now let me, let me hit pause on that. We're going to come back to that. But I do want to take a second and introduce myself a little bit. So uh, a lot of you are new to our church, or some of you that, that aren't, haven't seen me up here on stage as much as maybe I was before, and that's because my role has changed. So I am now a, a church planning candidate. My wife and I are planning on heading out to plant a church in West Lafayette, Indiana in 2023 to try to reach out to that city and the students at Purdue. And, and our story is we, we came up here with the, the Salt City Church plant five years ago. And I was the, the college ministry director at that time, and then a couple years ago transitioned over to staff on the church side of things. Um, and it's been this remarkable thing that I haven't gotten over, especially last week with the, the five-year video. I haven't got over this fact that I've gotten to watch this church grow from just an idea, a concept, into like real people in front of me, this real thing that God has done with real stories. And uh, we get to go be a part of that again. And uh, this is what our network of churches do, is we, we plant new churches. Uh, we do that because we believe in it theologically. So when we look at the New Testament, we see the primary way that they applied the Great Commission was that they planted churches. The majority of the New Testament was written to church plants. And so we believe in church planting theologically, but we also believe in it anecdotally, experientially. What we've learned is is that when you start something new, new life starts to kind of come up through that. And there's, there's ways that a new church can reach people that existing churches can't. And so it comes into that community of other churches and reaches people for Jesus. And 
We want to be a part of that. Um, and the way that we plant new churches is by sending a church to a place and saying, hey, church, go be the church. So one way to plant a church, which is great, which is to send maybe a pastor and his family to a place and they meet some neighbors and eventually meet as a public gathering when enough people come. But, but the way that we go about it is we actually want to take a church to a place and say, live as a witness to who Jesus Christ is in that city. Just go be the church. And so our strategy is ordinary Christians living ordinary lives with an extraordinary love for each other given by an extraordinary God. And we think that people will want to be a part of that. And so in order to do that, we need people to move with us. We need a, a church to come. And so we've actually got some vision trips coming up where people from Salt City and from other churches around our group of churches will be traveling to West Lafayette to see the town and, and consider if maybe God is calling them there. And so I want to make an invite out to you guys. We've got one actually this weekend. It's not too late. Come talk to me after the service if you're interested in that. Otherwise, we've got one the first weekend in November. Again, come say hi. I can get you information on that. Um, but we've also been able to start a small group, a, a, a Salt City connection group with people from this church that are planning on moving with us. And it has been so awesome. And I'm encouraged by their faith. And they're a group of people that are choosing to give up their life as it exists now so that somebody else that they don't know yet can meet Jesus. And I'm just encouraged and challenged by the fact that they've started to give up on that dream of a stadium of people chanting their names, and instead they've replaced it with the desire for a stadium of people chanting the name of Jesus. And regardless of if you go or stay, that's what we're after and what we want to participate in. That's true greatness. And so I want to talk about this idea, kind of back to it, of true greatness. How do we be a part of it? Well, in Mark 10... There's two different stories of people coming to Jesus wanting to be great. The first story is a, is a famous story in the Bible of the rich young ruler. That's in Mark uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. If you want to start flipping to Mark 10 with me, that'd be great. And then the second conversation is with the disciples in verses 34 through 30, or 45. Excuse me. And I just want to point out that in these conversations about what it means to be great, Jesus does not critique their desire to be great, but he critiques their methodology. And so Jesus is going to give us a definition of what true greatness is and then invite us to participate in that instead of the illusions of greatness that we tend to pursue. And the way that he's going to do that is he, he'll give both of these people that ask him about greatness paradoxical answers for what it means to be great in his kingdom. So let's look at these two paradoxical answers from Jesus. The first is to the rich young ruler. This is verse 17 through 31. So the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and, he, and he's clearly this earnest and relatively good man. But he also wanted to be first. He wanted to be powerful. He wanted to be important. He wanted to be wealthy, and those things had started to grip him and grip his life, and they were distracting him from what eternal life meant. 
He had all of those things, but he knew that he still had something missing, and that's why he runs up to Jesus, is because those things that he had achieved weren't satisfying his soul. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And in verse 21, we get Jesus' response. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now before I read the rest of this, I want you to, the way you imagine this story, the way you imagine the look on Jesus' face, the look in his eyes, it's a look of love. That's what motivates what he says next. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And the man hears this response from Jesus and he walks away sad, dejected, because he didn't understand that when Jesus was telling him to give up his money, that he actually would have gained incomparably more in Christ than what he already had with his money. See, Jesus is not trying to take from this man. He's trying to give to this man. He's trying to give him real life in him. And so Jesus gives us the, the paradox of the kingdom himself in his own words, verse 31, but many who will be first... Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The way that you win is that you lose. The way that you go up is that you go down. You lower yourself, and you give away what you have in order that you can be elevated and you can gain in Christ. Now, I want you to, to notice something with this statement from Jesus. Jesus does give the man a command to sell his things, but when he says the first will be last and last will be first, it's not a command, it's a description of how the world works. Okay, so Jesus here is not as much saying you should give your money even though it will be bad for you in the end, it's the right thing to do. He's saying something slightly different. He's saying that the way that his kingdom works and how the world works is that when you give away things, you end up gaining in the end. If you give away your life, you'll actually end up getting more in return ultimately. But if you try to hold on to it, it'll fall through your fingers like sand. You'll lose it anyway. So my son, Graham, is uh, one of my favorite human beings on the planet. The guy is just an absolute delight. But he also is utterly accident prone. The dude has taken some lumps over his three years in life. Uh, at this point, when we go into the emergency room, we're on like a first-name basis. They're like, oh, welcome, Graham. We haven't seen you in two weeks. It's been a long time. They know us well there. Just stitches, all kinds of stuff. And so this kid, understandably, is a little bit freaked out by the world. And so this is what it's like to give a piggyback ride to an anxious kid in your backyard. Okay, so I throw Graham on my shoulders the other day. And I take off, take off running, right? I'm giving him the piggyback ride. And as soon as I start running, he goes, Dad, Dad, look out for the fire pit. We're going to fall into it. And so I turn, and I'm going a different direction. Dad, Dad, look out for the fence. Roman's going to eat us. Roman is the dog next door, a very large dog that barks at us. Uh, okay, so I turn, go the other, other direction. Dad, you're going too fast. We're going to fall. And so I'm like, all right. So I eventually let him down off my shoulders. Like, let's play baseball, man. Let's just, let's do something different, new activity. And so we're starting to play catch and an airplane flies overhead. And Graham goes, Dad, we got to go inside. We're going to get wet. And I went, what? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand that connection. 
And he said, well, it's, it's thundering, which means that it's going to rain. And I said, no, dude, it was, it was a plane. Like, there's, there's not a cloud in the sky. We're good. And he's like, nope, it's, it's going to rain. We've got to go inside. And he just walked inside. I'm just standing outside with a baseball <laughs> by myself. See ya. Um, now, now, here's the deal. Graham was warning me about those first three things because he has experience with them. So he unfortunately has run into the fire pit at full speed. Luckily, there was no fire in it, but still painful. Hit his shins, and he fell into it, like near concussion. Thankful that it wasn't, but it still hurt, right? He hasn't actually gotten eaten by Roman, but he has gotten too close to the fence, and he's barked at him, and it's freaked him out. And he's run too fast too many times, and he runs with his head over his feet, and he falls on his face. And it all hurts, right? So those first three statements were legitimate warnings because they were in accordance with reality. Like, if we would have hit the fire pit, it actually would have hurt. The fourth statement wasn't actually in accordance with reality, right? So, so if we would have stayed out there a little bit longer, we wouldn't have actually gotten wet. And so all that listening to that like, statement or command from Graham did was keep us from having more fun in the backyard, all right? So... I think that for a lot of us, the way we think about the teachings and commands of Jesus, we tend to think they're like that fourth one instead of the other three. We tend to think that Jesus' commands are arbitrary and not in accordance with reality, and maybe we should listen to them, but if we disobey them, don't follow them, we won't actually get hurt, and really all they're ultimately doing is keeping us from having fun. But what I'm saying here is Jesus' commands are like the first three. His statements are like the first three. They're in accordance with reality. And if you don't listen to them, if you don't live in accordance with them, it will hurt. Because Jesus designed the world. He knows how it works. He has the blueprints. He understands this world in the right way and the wrong way to live in it. The good way to live and the bad way to live. The, the life-giving way and the way of pain and death. And when he says to gain your life is to lose it, uh, or, or if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it, it's because it's objectively true. That's the way the world works. But if you try to hold on to your life, you're going to end up losing it because that is in accordance with reality. He's telling us what's true. That's the first paradox. All right, the second paradox of how the world works is that greatness comes through service. Look at verse 37, this conversation with James and John. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those, it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus has just gotten done predicting his own death in Jerusalem. And James and John come up to him in a master class of bad timing and say, hey, Jesus, we know you just were talking about crucifixion, but we want you to do a favor for us. We want you to make us great. 
Again, this is what they ask him for, verse 37. Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in glory. Now, I don't think when they're saying in glory, I don't think they understood yet kind of the reality of heaven and the type of kingdom that Jesus was building. I think what they're saying here is what they understood the Messiah to be, which was someone who would come and overthrow Rome. And so functionally, they're saying, hey, Jesus, when you overthrow Rome and when you sit as king politically, we want to be your vice presidents. We want to have similar power to what you have. We want to rule with you. And Jesus, again, is not going to condemn them for their desire to be great, but he's going to correct them on the methodology of greatness. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. True greatness does not equal dominate, a domineering authority. It does not equal traditional power. Greatness equals service. And we have proof that that is objectively true because Jesus is inarguably the greatest person who has ever lived. You can know that through looking at history, and we can know that through looking forward in Scripture. In Revelation 5, it talks about at the end of all history how these scrolls will be unrolled, which is symbolizing history itself. And they're calling out and saying, who can claim history for themselves? Who's the ruler of all of these things? Who's been in control this whole time? And nobody on earth or in heaven could claim it, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, steps forward and says that he can unroll the scrolls of history. He is Lord over heaven and earth forever. And what is his methodology for that utter absolute greatness? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service and humility was his methodology for greatness, and it's the only method for true greatness. I don't know if any of you have seen this, uh, this, this show before. I forget what it's called, but essentially the premise was they would take CEOs of large companies, and they would have those CEOs start working an entry-level job so that they could get a feel for like what their company was like, how hard it was to do the job, but also so that they could learn like kind of how the managers were functioning, how the company worked. So I don't remember too much about this, but I remember this one episode distinctly where there was the CEO that started this, uh, this entry-level job at a, at a fast food chain, and the manager, of course, doesn't know that this is the CEO. It's a big enough company. The manager doesn't know who he is. And this manager was just absolutely horrible. Like, not, not only to him, but to all of the employees. So she's making fun of him. She's berating him. He's actually doing a pretty decent job, but she's just yelling at him. And he just stands there, and he just, he just takes it. He doesn't say a word, and it's just really uncomfortable because you know what's going on, but this manager doesn't. And it's just this horrible scene well, then at the end of it, they turn the tables, right? And so then the CEO is sitting at his desk in his, in his suit, and they bring in this manager, and she sees him and realizes for the first time, like, who he is. And in this moment, instead of apologizing, she continues to defend herself. And it's like interrupting him, arguing with him. It's, it's just, it's painful to watch. 
And then in the moment of sweet justice that you just love, he finally has had enough of it, and he's like, look, you're, you're fired. And he, just, and he just sends her out, right? He was completely justified in that. Okay. Jesus lowered himself as creator into his own creation. Jesus came incognito as God disguised as a human being, fully human, fully God, but because of their perceptions of who he is, because of that incognito take, they didn't understand who he was, and they just said, who are you? What's your authority? Aren't you just this guy from, from Nazareth? And they, they treated him terribly, and he just stood there, and he took it. And all of humanity, including us by our sin, rejected him, and we treated him terribly. And Jesus could have had the divine moment of retribution. There was this moment where they were mocking him on the cross, saying, if you're the Messiah, come down. And he could have brought down an army of angels to rescue him. In his resurrection, when he proved himself to be God, he could have then judged the earth. But that wasn't the point of his first coming. The point of his first coming was love. The point was that he came to be a ransom for many. And instead of judging you, he judged your enemies, Satan, sin, and death, so that you could be set free. Even in our rejection of him, Jesus humbled himself to serve and bless us. That's an incredible mystery that he entered his creation. Like, like I think about the words from Hark the Herald, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, covered up in flesh, look through it and see the Godhead, hail the incarnate deity. God's method of self-disclosure was the weakness of humanity. His plan of salvation was that he would be oppressed and afflicted, as Isaiah 53 talks about. He was the lion that became a lamb. His coronation was a crucifixion. His exaltation was witnessed only by a bunch of outcasts. That was his plan from the beginning. And he embraced humility and service. Why? Because it was his methodology for ransoming, redeeming the world. He gave up his life so that other people could have life. And then he looks at us and he says, I love you. Follow me. Be like me. Jesus ascended into heaven. He has a physical body, but he has left earth. So the question is, is how is he still serving the world? And there's a lot of ways that you could answer that, but one of the primary ways that you can answer it is by saying he's serving the world through you. Is his physical body has left earth, but he's inhabited earth in you. There's an analogy in scripture of the body of Christ that we collectively, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are the hands and feet of Christ here to serve the world. And that's what discipleship is. I found this definition of discipleship by Donald English that I really love. He says, discipleship is a self-denying, self-risking, self-giving part of lowly service for the redemption of the world. Here is the privilege and honor of being a Christian is empowered by God, you get to be a part of rescuing this world that Jesus came to save. And giving your life to that, in the grace of God, by the power of God, is true greatness. 
The point of Mark 10.45 is not that Jesus came to serve the world, so just sit back and enjoy it. There are elements of truth in that, but the the application of Mark 10.45 to the disciples is that he came to serve the world, therefore they should go serve the world in him. He gave his life away for someone else, so we then go do the same. All right, let's get a little bit more kind of into our lives, a little bit more practical. So Drew mentioned we're in this this three series, C's series, this introduction to who we are, celebrate, connect, and this is contribute. So all that we just talked about was laying the foundation for what it looks like to contribute as a part of the kingdom of God, to participate in building the kingdom. So what does it look like to start to contribute, to participate in the kingdom in this way? Well, you figure out what you love and what you rely on, and then you give that thing away. That's what it looks like. You give away your life. Again, in verse 21, Jesus looks at the rich young ruler, and he loves him. And not in spite of his love, but because of his love, Jesus invites the rich young ruler, to give away the thing that had control of his life, the thing that was holding his heart so that he could be freed up to follow Jesus, to give up his life for other people. The man thought that money was freeing him, that it was giving him control over his own life, but it was actually enslaving him. So an analogy that I was thinking about for this is my daughter Joy has this, uh, uh, this toy that she plays with that I was trying to figure out how to describe to you and I couldn't figure it out that well, so I just took a picture of it. Is it up there? Okay, that's the toy. I didn't, I didn't know how to describe that with just words. Okay, so you see it, you take these little shapes and you put it through the holes in the side and then that top part up there, you see like the hole at the top is so you can dump the shapes out. Well, Joy likes to reach her hand into that hole in the top and try to grab the blocks out. So her hand is just the right size to be able to fit through the hole in the top, but once she closes her fist around one of those blocks, she can't get it out, and chaos ensues. So now this thing is stuck on her hand, and she's throwing it around like this, like trying to get it off, not realizing that all she has to do is let go, and she'd be able to get her hand out. That's what we're like with the things that we hold on to in our lives. What are the things in your life that you have a a white-knuckle grip on? Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your friends and your relationship. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your kind of this, this view of you as being a good person or a good Christian. What are those things that you get afraid to let go of, that you just have this white knuckle grip on? You think that those things are setting you free, but they're actually a trap. They're actually enslaving you. And so the life of a Christian looks like starting to open up your hands and to give those things away. To begin to contribute instead of consume as an act of worship of saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. And so I don't need this thing anymore that I've been looking for, for security to keep me safe. I can give that away to you because I'm found safe in you. You've rescued me. You've redeemed me. I have everything I need in you. I can let go. As an act of worship, but also as an act of love for someone else. 
So for all of us, this could be a few different things. Let's just talk about two of those things that we might hold on to for comfort and, or for security. The first one, money, and the second, comfort. Okay, so money. Have you ever had that moment where you see people that seem like they should be like roughly in your socioeconomic category, but they have way more stuff than you? And you're just like, how did you do that? Like, why is your house nicer than mine? How can you afford that car? Part of the reason is some people can't credit, like they just buy things that they can't. So that's part of the answer. But also some of the answer that I've kind of started to realize as I've asked this question, because I've honestly had that moment where I'm looking around like, man, how do, you, how do you do this? Like, I want some of the stuff you have. Part of the answer is they're not giving away a significant portion of their income. And I've, I've had these, these moments where I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, why, why am I giving away some of my money when I could have this other stuff? I'm giving away my money to different organizations or to the church, whatever, and, and I don't see the, the practical implications of that necessarily. I could have this thing that that person has. Why do I do this? Why would we do that as Christians? Well, because that's the gospel. Like, I think about you guys that were radically generous towards this building campaign, this vision for doing church that we haven't seen realized yet. And here's what you were doing. You were giving away what you have now so that someone in the future that you don't know yet could know Jesus. So they could walk into that place, be welcomed in. Maybe a family that doesn't feel comfortable coming here would come there and they would hear the gospel and be saved. And so here's why you're doing that as a Christian is because what you give away now is creating worship into eternity three million years from now for that person. Jesus is using that simple gift of generosity to bring the kingdom of God to earth in them. That's the gospel. That's giving away your life so that others can receive life in Christ. Comfort. Look at Mark 10, 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So his disciples are grappling with this fact that they've, they've given up their, their families and their homes and their jobs and their life in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus here is reassuring his disciples that even though they have left those things, that God will ultimately replace and multiply those things. Now notice this isn't the, the prosperity gospel that your life necessarily gets kind of richer physically or more happy. He includes in there who won't receive mothers and children and lands with persecutions. So, so you're going to suffer in this life, but there's a sense that you gain ultimately more by gaining discipleship to Jesus than you ever give away. And he's reassuring them, reassuring them of those things, that he will ultimately be the provider for them. But I just want to point out, in order to see God provide in miraculous ways for you like that, to see him come through for you when you give up your life for the gospel, you have to give up your life for the gospel. <laughs> 
And so a very specific application that is, yes, a little bit relevant to my life, okay, but I think it, I think it works here. Some of you need to give up family and friends and relationships and your life that you know here to come with us to Lafayette so that someone there can know Jesus. Is that the application for all of you? Of course not. Is that the application for most of you? No, but it is the application for some of you. And it's the beauty of giving up the life that you know so that somebody else can have life forever. That eternal impact is incredible that you give up some of your life now and someone's eternity is changed, that even after your own death, Jesus is multiplying the impact of your sacrifice. That you get to see that happen for somebody else is one of the coolest things that you could ever be a part of, whether it's there or here or wherever God takes you. Give away your life so that people can meet Jesus. He's worth it. Hasn't he been worth it for you? Don't you want them to know? It's a privilege to get to see that. Some of you need to give up evenings at home with your family so that your coworkers and neighbors can experience hospitality in your home and can see the gospel live through your life. You need to give away your time so that other people that need it can have it. You need to give away your talents and your resources that God gave you, not to elevate your pride, but to benefit someone else and display his sacrificial goodness to the world. Be a part of it. Now, it sounds really hard, and it is. And none of us are living this out perfectly. The disciples that Jesus told to do this didn't live it out perfectly. But why is it worth it to live like that? Look at verse 30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come for eternal life. Here's why you should live that way is because you're missing out if you don't. Jesus here is saying that when you give away your life, you will receive a better life. And notice he says in this life. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time but also in the age to come. So a lot of you have been counting the cost of Christianity. And that's right, you should. You've been thinking about what Christianity would cost you. You have to give away some of your lifestyle, some of your sins, some of your time, some of your energy. And that's good that you're counting the cost of that. But have you counted the cost of not being a Christian? It's way greater. It's a much greater cost. Thinking about Christianity and knowing Jesus and thinking about the things you would have to give up to know him, you're not actually losing anything because you're gaining infinitely more in him. It makes up for it and a hundredfold more. Imagine you, you won the lottery, like one of those mega lottery, like $700 million, and yeah, it's taxed, you're not going to get all of it, but you're still making a lot of money. Imagine you win the lottery, you figure out you've got the winning lotto ticket, and, you th and you've got to drive two miles to redeem the ticket. And you sit in your home thinking, I don't know. It's going to take me about 10 minutes to get there. I'm going to spend a couple bucks in gas. Uh, you know, I don't know. 
Like your friends would be like, what are you doing? Like dry, like you're, you're making millions of dollars. You're not actually losing anything. That's what I'm saying. You, when you meet Jesus, you have won the lottery and yeah, you've got to give up your life and you've got to give up some stuff to follow him, but you're not actually losing anything because you're gaining infinitely more in him. The other reason why it's worth it is because you will never outserve Jesus. He's the son of man that came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's character is eternal and it's unchanging, which means that Jesus forever will be a servant-hearted person, which means that you for eternity will be being served by Jesus. He will serve you forever and he's better at serving than you are, which means that no matter how much you serve, Jesus will always be there providing for your needs. He's trustworthy. Give away your life and find it in him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for this, this vision for life in you that's really compelling. Thanks for inviting us into something bigger than just our little stories and our little ambitions. God, make us into a church that gives away our life so that the city can know you. And God, we confess, this is really hard for us. We don't always trust you in this. We don't always know how to do this well. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are a humble servant that came to redeem us. And so none of us are that trust you are, are, are condemned because of previous failures to serve. This isn't about impressing you with our service. This is about the fact that we love you and you know the right way to live. And we want to we follow you into that. And so give us the grace and the power by your spirit to do it. We love you. Amen.